if you all want to stand in honor of reading God's word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You guys can have a seat. I'd like to start this morning uh, before, before the sermon with some prayer. So if you'd pray with me. Lord, uh, we, we live in a really, uh, really broken and hurting world. A world that needs your gospel, needs your people so badly. And we're reminded of that this week with events in Indianapolis and in Minnesota. Lord, I pray that you, you would raise uh, up your people to teach your good news. That you would change people to live by that belief in you. Lord, that, that, that your will would be done on earth, God. Lord, I want to pray specifically for the situation in Minnesota and for uh, the shooting this week. Whatever the particulars are, and, and you know, God, we mourn. We mourn with you the loss of life. We pray comfort for a family who has lost a loved one and, and for families in Indianapolis as well who lost loved ones. We Pray comfort for another family whose lives, relationships will never be the same. Lord, we pray for communities that are shaken, shocked, frustrated. God, we pray for justice, knowing that, knowing that perfect justice is just not, it's not attainable in this life, but you promise, God, to bring perfect justice in the end because you are perfectly just. We thank you. We thank you that in the gospel, we know that you took that justice on yourself for us and for our sins. Pray that you'd help us to be a community, a church that extends grace to others according to the grace that we've received from you. And that through us, that grace would be made known to others. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, uh, I think all of us have hobbies. I don't know what your hobbies are, um, but we all have different hobbies, things that interest us. I like to do fitness stuff. That's my, my hobby. Uh, I do a bit of lifting. If you've talked with me in the last couple of months, then I've probably mentioned to you Garage Gym, as I like to call it. Um, I'm not quite as obsessive, I think, 
as CrossFitters when they talk about like their box and all that, that stuff, but I might be bordering on it, so I apologize for that. I just am very excited uh, to pick things up and put things down in my garage in the morning. So what are you going to do? It's my hobby, uh, I'm sure. And I feel like it's a biblical hobby too, right? First Timothy 4.8, it says, physical training is of some value. So that's biblical, right? So I feel like I've got something there. Your thing might not be lifting or fitness stuff. You might be interested in something else. But, but the weird thing about the world we live in now is that whatever your hobby is, you may not physically know someone else who's into that hobby or who's an expert on that hobby, but you have access to people who know all sorts of things and are into all sorts of things through the internet, right? Through YouTube or Google or, or what have you. Connect with people who are into the thing that you're into and may be able to give you some information about how to do that thing better. And so oftentimes I find myself when I'm trying to uh, do a, learn a new lift or, or wanting to make sure I'm doing it correctly, I get on the YouTube, you know, and, and I'm like, okay, how do, what's proper technique for, you know, a deadlift or a squat or whatever. And I watch these videos of people who, who coach people in these things. And, and the interesting thing is that, that sometimes I run into this problem and maybe in your hobbies, you run into a similar problem as you, as you do this. You got one guy saying the best, this is the best exercise for you to do. And, and you've got another guy saying, no, 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 that exercise is worthless. Uh, it's not even, I don't even know why anyone, you know, does that. Don't do that. You got one guy saying, hey, hey, it's better for you to take a wider stance. You got another guy saying, no, take a narrower stance. That's better. Another guy saying like, it doesn't matter. Just do what's comfortable to you. Like, oh gosh, you know. It's comfortable to me. None, none of this is comfortable to me. That's why I'm out here. So you got one guy saying, well, the science says this is the best thing. And you got another guy that says, well, the science doesn't matter. Who am I supposed to listen to? Who can I trust to be an expert in my thing? I want to do it well. And your thing might not be my thing. Maybe your thing is a different thing. But perhaps you run into the same problem. Or perhaps... As you have questions about the Bible or about Christianity or about Jesus, you go to Google or you go to YouTube, as we do with anything, right? And you're like, oh, well, what's the answer to this question? And you watch one video and someone says, well, it's this. And you watch another and someone says, well, no, it's actually, it's that. Like, what am I supposed to, like, who am I supposed to trust here? Who's a reliable teacher? Last week, we did an overview of the book of Romans, and we said that uh, the whole book of Romans, if we tried to sum it up in a sentence, which is hard to do, I admit, the whole book of Romans is about how the gospel must shape our church's beliefs and behaviors. And we talked about how the first part of the book talks a lot about how the gospel shapes what we believe in particular areas. And then the second part is about how that gospel then ought to affect how we behave. And as we jump into these first few verses, our text today is, I think, deals with a similar problem as we deal with as we try to decide who's reliable, who can I trust to listen to on a particular subject? Because 
Paul knows that his letter that he's writing to the church in Rome, these uh, Roman Christians, they're not necessarily a neutral audience, and they're not even necessarily pro-Paul per se. A lot of them have some skepticism about him. They've never met him. You know, a lot of the other churches that Paul writes to, he's been physically present there. He maybe started the church, and so he writes to them as, as he knows them personally, as he's been there. But for the Roman church, he's never been there. They've never seen him. They've only heard about him, and not everything they've heard is necessarily good. A lot of it maybe is questionable. A lot of it may be rumors. And so Paul is writing, and he's giving uh, uh, what is a pretty typical introduction to a first century letter, a pretty typical introduction to uh, a letter that he would write, but there's one difference. As he's describing himself, he's taking a little bit more time in these first few verses to give what I think is his credentials. He's saying, this is why, this is why you ought to listen to me. This is why I am... I have the credentials to write to you about these things. And maybe there's, maybe there's a particular preacher or teacher that you've wondered about. Should I listen to this person? Maybe that preacher or teacher is me. It's okay. I don't want you to take what I say, everything that I say up here as infallible truth. I want you to compare it to Scripture. And somewhere in between naive acceptance and cynical skepticism is a wise discernment about the things that you're listening to. But what filter should we use to discern it? And I think these verses, as Paul lays out his credentials for writing the the letter to the Romans, give us a starting point for some guidelines for trustworthy biblical teaching. Uh, Certainly, there, there are probably more things that we could add in here But I think what Paul shares is maybe a minimum standard. Now, that's not to say, as we go through this, I I want to be clear, that's not to say that someone who's generally a bad teacher, a a teacher that we ought not to listen to, can't sometimes say a good and right thing, right? Even a blind squirrel finds an acorn every once in a while, as they say. It's also not to say that a very good teacher who's generally one to be trusted and reliable doesn't sometimes say something that is not good. And that's why I think this is so important for each of us as we're listening to someone teaching from God's word to use discernment and to compare what they say according to these guidelines. So what what is it? What will help us identify and distinguish between teaching we may not like and teaching that may actually be wrong. And so I'm organizing Paul's points into two primary headings this morning. The first one is this, that reliable and trustworthy teachers, they teach a gospel message. And we're going to see that in Paul's explanation of the gospel, particularly in verses 2 through 4. And then the second heading is this, they teach with gospel purpose. And we're going to see Paul's explanation of the purpose of his apostleship in verses 5 through 7. So that's where we're going. And here's why this is so, so critical, guys. 
This is why it's critical for the Romans, and this is why it's critical for you. Paul is certainly going to tell the Romans some things that they may not like hearing, okay? They may not like how it makes them feel when they hear it, but that doesn't make it untrue. In fact, if we flip forward in Romans, we turn towards the end in chapter 15, verse 15, Paul admits, I've spoken to you very boldly on some points. And there will be points in sermons over the next few months as we go through the book of Romans. I'm just going to be honest with you. And as I preach through it, and, and as anyone else who preaches Romans preaches, that there are going to be points that you may not like hearing. There are going to be verses and chapters uh, and paragraphs that you don't like what's in them. But by what standard will you ask yourself, is this a true teaching that I don't believe because I don't like it? Or is it a teaching I might not like, but that doesn't mean it's not true. You see what I'm saying? We have to ask ourselves, by what standard will we decide that? And I don't think that whether or not we like something is always a very good standard. So let's look at the, this passage. Let's jump in. The passage starts with Paul introducing himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. The word servant is probably better translated slave, well, literally translated slave. Paul doesn't see himself so much as a person with authority as he's writing this letter. He doesn't see himself as a person with authority as much as he sees himself as one under authority. So the words that he writes are not so much him going, hey, you need to know this, you need to do this, as much as him going, hey, look, I'm putting myself under what Christ says you should believe and Christ says you should know, and I'm only the messenger who's conveying this. In fact, when you look at the word apostle, the word apostle literally means messenger, particularly messenger of the gospel is often how it's used. But there's another way that Paul uses it. He uses it in a second sense as those who specifically had physical interaction with Jesus and whom Christ had given the special role to lay a gospel foundation for the church. And so that's how Paul is distinguishing himself. He's saying, hey, look, this is what Jesus has called me to. I'm under his authority. This is the message I'm giving you. These are part of my credentials for writing this. Now, a little extra credit point for you. Anyone teaching and preaching the Bible, and that's every Christian in some context, I want you to understand that, not just the one standing in the pulpit, but all of you, if you're believers, there's some point in which you're going to teach and preach the Bible to someone else, even if it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation. So everyone who teaches and preaches the Bible doesn't have authority in themselves, but only an authority derived from God in as much as what they're teaching aligns with God's word. You need to understand that. The only authority that I have as I stand up here and say something to you from the Bible is an authority that's derived from God in as much as the things that I say align with his word. And whenever they don't align with his word, I've got no authority at all. So Paul says 
He's called and set apart for something. He's called and set apart for the gospel of God. And that's our first credential, right? They teach the gospel message. But what is that message? Is the gospel that you're hearing someone teach in a particular moment, is it the gospel or is it a different gospel? Verse 2 tells us, well, verse 2 through 4 tell us two criteria for the gospel. Scripture, I'm, I'm, this is my alliteration, scripture and son. That's how you can remember from this passage, scripture and son. It's found, the gospel is found in God's word and the gospel is about God's son. Verse 2 says, which he promised beforehand in the holy scriptures. The gospel is grounded in and found in the Bible, and all of Scripture is about the gospel. It either comes before and points to the gospel, or it comes after and is an application of the gospel. I think I've got a little illustration here for you, uh, shameless use of our logo. Um, but all of the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament goes into the gospel. All of it is leading into it. All of it is, is foreshadowing it. It's, it's setting it up, right? And then, then the gospel happens. It's the central event. And then out of that comes everything that happens. Out of that is all the applications of how we live out the gospel we find in the New Testament. So the gospel comes from Scripture. And all of Scripture is about the gospel. And if anyone has a different or a new gospel or a new revelation that's not found and centered in Scripture, then that is not someone you ought to listen to. That is not a trustworthy and reliable teacher. But Paul here, he's quite specific in this particular passage. And I want to get a little bit more narrow because I think Paul gets a little more narrow here. Paul is specifically talking about the scriptures that came before the gospel. He's particularly talking about the Old Testament, the ones that promised what the Son did. And so Paul is referring to the Old Testament specifically. You can't fully understand the gospel. You can't fully understand the New Testament. You can't fully understand what it is, it is to be a Christian if you cut it off from the Old Testament. You cannot. Jesus didn't come to abolish the Old Testament or to fulfill it, but, but he, he didn't come to abolish it, but he came to fulfill it. So if any teacher wants to abolish the New Testament or abominate the New Testament or unhitch the New Testament from the, from, or from the Old Testament from the New Testament, I mean, they can't get the gospel right. I want you to understand that. If you detach the Old Testament from the gospel, you cannot cannot, cannot get the gospel right. You can't. I'm not saying they'll always get it wrong, but they can't get it right. Because the Old Testament is what Jesus used, it's what Paul used, it's what Peter used, it's what John used, it's what literally every person in the New Testament used to teach the gospel. So they teach the gospel message. That's what trustworthy teachers do. They teach it as it's found in scripture. But there's one more aspect Paul specifies, and it's that the gospel message is about Jesus, right? Verse three, it says, 
concerning his son. The gospel of God concerning his son. The gospel, I want you to understand, is a historical event. It is a thing that happened. The particular time, the particular place. It is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why words, teaching and preaching, have always been vital to Christianity. Because the gospel can't just be caught. You can't look at someone and go, oh, there's the gospel. I'll just do that. That's not the gospel. The gospel is an event that happened that has to be communicated from one person to another person. It's not something that someone else is doing. It's something that Jesus did. Now, this idea of the son, it's, it's one coin with two sides. The son is Messiah or Savior, and he's also Master and Lord. And here's what I mean. Paul gives us two parallel clauses in verses 3 and 4. Do you see this? He says, who was descended from David according to the flesh? And then he also says, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. He's using these two phrases in tandem, in parallel with one another to say two things that go together. That Jesus is Messiah and he's master. First, let's look at this idea that Jesus is Messiah. When Paul talks about Jesus being the seed of David, it's a clear reference to the Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, the Messiah that was foretold in the Old Testament. And this is according to the flesh. Now, now, now one important concept in Christianity, if you don't know, it's a little bit of a, a I don't know, a theology lesson, if you will. One important concept in Christianity is what we call the hypostatic union. Okay, fancy way of saying that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And that's a really, really important idea. Without it, you lose the gospel. But while according to the flesh is talking about Jesus becoming a human, these verses aren't necessarily concerned with Jesus' nature in that way, the, the hypostatic union particularly. They are concerned with the reality that when the son took on human form, he showed himself to be the Messiah that had been prophesied. That part of the gospel message is his life, death, life and death. So what he's saying is, man, you can't have the gospel if you're not talking about Jesus being the Messiah, meaning he came, lived among us, and died for us. But there's this other phrase in parallel. And so while the gospel is about Jesus being the Messiah and Savior, it's not only about that. And oftentimes, unfortunately, unfortunately we stop here. We say, yeah, Jesus died for you. He's the Messiah. And then that's the end of the conversation. But that's not all of the gospel. Look at what, look at what he says. He says, the other side of the corn is Jesus' master. At the end of verse 4, he says, Lord even. That Jesus was declared to be the son. Not that there was, you know, a change in his essence. 
Like he wasn't the second person in the Trinity and now all of a sudden he is. No, God's always been God. Jesus has always been God. Rather, there was a change in his status or function. What change was that? Look at the text. It says, he is the son of God in power. In other words, Jesus is now declared the authority over all things. He has all the power. He has all the cards. As as we'll see in verse 16, he has the power even over life and salvation, right? And when did this change in power take place? Look at the text. It says, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection. When by the power of the spirit, Jesus rose from the dead, his resurrection declared that he was master over everything. From that point, there is nothing he is not an authority over. That's the gospel message. And it must permeate every teaching, and it must permeate every aspect of our lives as well as Christians. And so Paul's first credential is teaching a gospel message. His second credential is teaching with gospel purpose. In verses 5 through 7, he unpacks what this means, and it has three effects. I'm going to use three words to kind of summarize them. Hopefully this helps you remember. Obedience, honor, and identity. His gospel purpose includes obedience, honor, and identity. Let me explain each of these briefly. Verse 5, he says that his apostleship, his work for the gospel in the church, is to bring about the obedience of faith. This This doesn't mean an obedience that produces salvation, nor is he teaching nor is his teaching directed at producing obedience only and those who already have faith. He's not saying like, oh, well, Paul's teaching is only for those who are already believers. It's also not saying that, well, in order to become a believer, you have to obey all these things first. No. You see, we often separate faith and works in a way that Paul and the New Testament just does not separate them. For Paul, it's not that works are necessary for salvation, but that salvation will necessarily produce works. The two things go hand in hand every time. Paul can't fathom someone coming to Jesus that doesn't also include a resulting and growing obedience in Jesus. I want you to listen to this. Paul cannot fathom the idea that someone would come to Jesus without that also producing and resulting an obedience in Jesus. It's just not a concept that Paul has in his, anywhere in his brain. Because it's not a concept that Jesus talked about. It doesn't happen. And so when Paul preaches the gospel, he preaches it so that someone might be saved and baptized, but simultaneously intends them to learn to obey Jesus more and more. And that's a process. It's a process we're all in. But it's necessary. And here's what's, here's what's cool. Jesus promises it'll happen. He promises. He's, he promises by his Holy Spirit, he will do it. And so if someone is teaching a gospel that says you can, you can be saved by Jesus without repentance from sin and growth in godliness, don't trust it. 
And if someone is teaching a gospel that says you must be more obedient in order to be savable by Jesus, don't trust it. Turn it off. Listen to someone else. If obedience is what Paul intends to produce, then honor is why. Not honor to ourselves, not honor to someone else, but honor to Jesus, right? Glory to Jesus. He says, verse 5 finishes, for the sake of his name among all the nations. Paul wants to make Jesus known, and he wants him to be known among all peoples. little side note here. If you believe anyone is more or less able to be saved based on the color of their skin, that is dishonoring to God by this verse. If you believe anyone is more or less worthy to hear the gospel based on their ethnicity or their geography, that is dishonoring to God by this verse. If you imagine a heaven that is monochromatic, that's dishonoring to God by this verse. Do you understand? You have dishonored God. We're going to find out what God has for those who dishonor him in a couple of weeks. Spoiler alert, it's his wrath. So if that's even a small, deep, secret part of your heart, I implore you to confess your sin and repent and ask God to change you. Because I don't want the wrath of God to be on you. Back to our text. Understand, it's not for Paul's own sake that he does what he does. It's not for Paul's sake that he teaches what he teaches. It's not for Paul's sake that he's writing this letter to the Romans. It's not even for the sake of the Romans that he does it. Not primarily. That's not because he doesn't care about them or he, he doesn't want the best for them. He doesn't want, obviously, he does. He's writing the letter. But his ultimate goal, the highest priority under which every other priority must fall, including his own needs and the needs of the Romans, is God's glory and honor. That's the most important thing to Paul, that God would be glorified and that God would be honored. If our ultimate goal is God's glory, then we will seek to not only do what's best, what's right, what's obedient, but to do it in the right way and to do it for the right reasons. And when we keep that focus, it will produce true spiritual fruit. Paul knows that. So he's writing this letter. One last effect. So we got obedience. We got honor. Last thing is identity. This is cool. Listen to this. Paul continues in verse 6. He says, including you, including you. He gets really specific to the Romans. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Do you understand, church, that if you are, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, that's you. That you are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Above every other possible identity that you might have, every other identity marker that the world might throw at you or that you might believe about yourself, above all of that, the number one thing is that you are God's. That's your highest identity, and that is amazing. Paul elaborates in verse 7. He says, you're loved by God. That the creator of the whole universe who sent his son to, to live a perfect life and die and rise from the dead, that he loves you. 
not in some far off, distant, God has to love everyone sort of a way. But in a close, covenantal, committed, familial sort of love, here's, here's how I know that. Because it also says that you, church, are called to be saints. And this is important in two ways. First, because this phrase means pure ones or set apart ones. You were set apart by God to be made pure before him and by him. Whatever identity, whatever identity you carry into faith in Jesus, whatever sin has shaped your life before you came to Christ, God intends, no, God promises not only to forgive it, but to purify it and to set you apart from it. That's who you are now in Christ. Just as Jesus is the authority over everything, over every identity, he's the authority as well. And we must submit every identity to that identity. So this phrase, called to be saints, when you take it together with loved by God, those two phrases together, it's a clear reference to Old Testament terms that were used together throughout the Old Testament for God's chosen people. He's saying, church, Paul is saying to a primarily Gentile church in Rome, and he's saying to you, church, remarkably, that you are the true people of God. That those who have faith in Jesus, that the church has always been and will always be God's chosen people. That's true of the Roman church, and that's true of proclaimed church. And so when it says you belong to Jesus, and that you're loved by God and called to be saints, that you were chosen. Not, a, not generally chosen, that you were particularly chosen by God. It's amazing. That's shocking. And thus, we as believers experience, the last phrase in this, in this verse, we experience a grace and a peace that cannot be found outside of Jesus. It's a remarkable identity. And so to recap, Paul's first credential is that he preaches the gospel message. It's the message that is grounded and founded in the scriptures. It's a message that is about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our Messiah and Master. And his second credential is that he teaches with gospel purpose to bring us to, faith, to a faith-fueled obedience with Christ-honoring intent to experience a new identity in Jesus. So I return to my original question. By what standard, as we go through the book of Romans, as you listen to someone teaching the Bible, as you read the Bible yourself, by what standard will you ask yourself, is this a true teaching that I don't believe because I don't like it? Or is this teaching something I might like, but I shouldn't believe because it's not true? And in, in, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul, he writes to Timothy, and he tells him to make sure to preach the word. And then he says this, he says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth 
and wander off into myths. Man, more than ever. You can turn on Google or YouTube. You can put up, t- take out your phone. And you can find people who will say what you want to hear. What, what feels good in the moment. What already aligns with what you already thought. But I ask you, Is it the gospel? Is it true? You see, there are many sweet truths in the gospel in God's word that at first may not sound very likable. I know that because there are a lot of things, even in this book of Romans, that at first I didn't like and now have become some of the sweetest truths to my life. The reality is, friends, we're sinful, we're prideful, And so we know that there are going to be times when there's things that we like that aren't actually good for us, that aren't actually right. And so if likability is our standard, we'll wander off. But I think if we ask ourselves this question, I think it will help tremendously. Are they preaching the Son of God from the Word of God for the glory of God? 